This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I'm flying solo today. My co-host Bob Ambrosi, normally in Massachusetts, is leaving his heart in lovely San Francisco. Uh, Bob writes a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Today, though, we're going to be talking about the big dig and the company that provided the epoxy that's been blamed in that fatal big dig tunnel collapse, and it was indicted last Wednesday. Power Fasteners Incorporated was charged with one count of involuntary manslaughter. Under Massachusetts law, the corporation could face probably no more than a $1,000 fine, Bob tells me. Milena Del Valle was killed when 26 tons of concrete panels and hardware came crashing down from a tunnel ceiling onto her car as she and her husband drove through the westbound I-90 connector tunnel in Boston. Prosecutors have said that power fasteners allegedly knew the type of epoxy it marketed and sold for the nearly $15 billion and climbing project was unsuitable for the weight it would have to hold, but it never told project managers. The bolts were allegedly secured with power fasteners' fast-set epoxy rather than its standard product. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing the reaction to this indictment charging power fasteners with uh, involuntary manslaughter the cap on criminal penalties for corporations, and what future holds for other companies that could be potentially charged for this tragedy. We have two guests today. I'd like to welcome our first guest, David Frank. He's a news reporter from Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. David joined Massachusetts Lawyer Weekly in June of 2005. He's a senior reporter and brings a very intimate knowledge of the trial courts, which he honed first as a career prosecutor prior to joining Lawyers Weekly. Most recently, David worked as an assistant DA in the gang unit at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Prior to that, he worked in the Bristol County DA's office, notably working on the prosecution team that secured a murder conviction for Jacques Rubidoux, the cult member charged with starving his one-year-old son. David currently co-hosts another sports radio program uh, with Boston attorney Scott Galfeski. If I'm saying that right, you can correct me, David. Um, on AM 1510, The Zone, which is focused on the legal and off-the-field issues that affect the world of sports. His show, Sports Court, airs on Sunday nights from 5 to 7 in the evening, East Coast time. Welcome to the show, David. Greg, thank you very much for having me. And our next guest is attorney Bradley M. Henry. Brad is a partner in the Boston law firm of Meehan, Boyle, Black, and Bogganow, and Plaintiff's Liaison Counsel on behalf of the children of Melina Del Valle. He specializes in complex litigation involving catastrophic injury and wrongful death, including institutional liability and transportation cases. He's formerly a defense attorney representing airlines in crash and personal injury litigation. Over the past decade, he's turned to handling high-profile media-intensive cases on behalf of victims and their families. He's one of the as mentioned earlier, the attorneys representing the children in the state of Marina de Valley and Del Valley versus Bechtel, uh, et cetera, et al., and a lot of other people, I'm sure, arising out of the big dig tunnel ceiling collapse. Welcome to the show, Brad Henry. Great. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me. And hi, David. How are you? I'm doing very well. Interesting topic on the agenda tonight. Sure is. 
Well, let's take a look at the uh, logistics of this indictment. Um, this is a question for either one of you. What are the basic facts against the uh, against power fasteners? How do they think they can establish intent against the corporation? Well, maybe we can split this. This is Brad Henry. Uh, David has a great deal more criminal in, uh, background than I do um, with his experience with the district as a district attorney or assistant district attorney. But I've been spending the better part of the last year looking into the facts. So how about if I give you the, the facts as I understand them, and then David can maybe give you some of the, uh, the, the implications of the criminal uh, indictment against Powers. Great. As we understand it, Powers Fasteners has been uh, distributing the adhesive anchor systems for, for many years, since the early 90s, and has had two different types of, at least two different types of systems, a, a fast set or fast-curing epoxy, and a standard set or a standard-curing epoxy. In 1999, orders were placed, a a large number of orders were placed for the I-90 connector tunnel for fast-set epoxies to install wall panels and ceiling panels uh, to anchor them to the walls and to the upper ceiling of the tunnel. The allegations, as we understand it, are that uh, in the summer of 1999, large amounts of FASTSET were being sent to through its distributor, Newman Renner Colony, to Modern Continental, which is the uh, contractor that was installing the tunnel finishes, and a very small amount of uh, standard set was shipped. In October, or by October of 1999, it was becoming clear that panels in the eastbound or in the HOV lane were starting to come out. These are the first ceiling panels that were installed. were starting to creep out slowly over time. And so the various uh, parties involved, that's uh, Modern Continental and Bechtel, Parsons, Brinkerhoff, uh, started to look into why this was happening and what to do about it. And one of the early things they did was to call the manufacturer or the distributor of this, uh, this system to come to the site and take a look at it. They called Powers Fasteners, and uh, as we understand it, an engineer from Powers arrived on October 13th, examined the creeping bolts. Um, By this time, they'd come out as much as half an inch, and uh, took the information back to headquarters and said he would return. Uh, Returned on October 21st of 99 and did a further examination, trying to determine why it is that these bolts were coming out. To our knowledge, at no time, either prior to or during either of these inspections, did Powers or any representative of Powers ever indicate that a possible problem would be that they were using the wrong kind of epoxy. And so they proceeded to install the rest of the ceiling, we believe wrongfully, um, without ever really determining the cause of the creeping bolts. And six years later, the tunnel collapsed. So those are the basic facts on on what happened with respect to powers and this uh, epoxy. And I mean, I, I, maybe I could pick it up at this point by talking about some of the the legal issues that are going to be at play in the criminal court because I think it's uh, it's it's a you know very important concept and a, and a, what I think is going to be a very difficult um, burden for the government to overcome here. This is a really hard case for the attorney general's office to uh, to win, in my opinion, from the criminal end. Because Massachusetts, unlike a lot of states in the United States, doesn't have a concept known as criminal negligence. There is no such thing in Massachusetts state court as criminal negligence. What that means is the attorney general is going to have to walk into a courtroom and convince 
uh, a judge or a jury that the, the conduct of powers involved a high degree of likelihood that substantial harm would result to another person, in this case, uh, Ms. Del Valle. That's very, it's, it's, it's a hard legal concept to show that someone's conduct involved such a degree of likelihood that this kind of harm would happen. It's a difficult concept when you have a human being charged with the crime. When you then take into account the fact that this is a corporation as opposed to a human, and you then take into account that you've got all these different companies, all these different players that were involved. You hear about Bechtel and Modern Continental. It's the classic finger-pointing defense case that you're going to see here. And you asked Craig off the bat what Powers has to do at trial. They don't have to do anything. The burden, obviously, in a criminal case is 100% on the government, on, on the attorney general, to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. So we're not talking about a preponderance of the evidence. We're not talking about more likely than not. We're talking about the highest standard in, uh, in the judicial system. And well, David, you know, I, I do some white-collar criminal defense and used to be a DA and a PD in my younger days. But, you know, there is a practical aspect of criminal defense that uh, there is a kind of sense that sometimes a company or a, a defendant is guilty until proven innocent. And there's a, there's a practical aspect of, while the constitutional aspect says, sure, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. But maybe in reality, isn't there part of a Part of it that's they're going to have to prove that they didn't have any intent to do anything that was criminally that forces any criminal liability on them. Yeah, I mean that's obviously that's a that's a one hundred percent legitimate point. I mean, when you have cases that have been in the media, when you have cases that people you know in all likelihood have formed some opinion about, you certainly need to weed that out during impanelment. But you're going to have jurors on there who have at least heard of what happened and and know the, the maybe the names of some of the particulars. But you still have a situation here where you don't have an individual sitting in a chair charged with a crime. You have a corporation. That's, I think, uh, you know, stumbling block number one for the government. And then when you have all these other companies, all these other people that, that played a hand in this thing, it, uh, you know, it just leads to the classic finger-pointing. And you know, I actually, you know, my position is one that um, I memorialized in an article back in March of, of this year when I talked to the Attorney General, I talked to um, former Attorney General Scott Harshbarger and a bunch of you know, lawyers that were familiar um, with, with these types of cases. And, you know, the general consensus was that this is a, an extremely uphill battle from the criminal standpoint. I don't think anyone is questioning that there was negligence. It certainly seems that there were plenty of people that are to blame when you consider this from the civil context. But when you look at it criminally and you look at the fact that you've only got one company thus far um, charged with, with, with manslaughter, it, uh, it, it certainly leaves a lot of uh, room to wiggle in terms of creating a defense and trying to uh, create some of that reasonable doubt. Well, well that's, that's all sure true, but the consensus also in March, and that was a great article, by the way, was that therefore she would not indict, and she went ahead and did. Right, but, 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 and, and that, that's true, but if you, if you also look back to what was said, and I think Scott Harshbarger, the, the former attorney general, who certainly has a good perspective on this, made the point that um, you know, it, it's a lose-lose. You know, the, the difficult decision would be, not to indict, because obviously there is so much, um, rightfully so, so much ill will towards what happened here. But well, you, can, you, can, you can indict, but, but there's a difference between an indictment and a conviction, obviously. And sure. I think sure. the, the consensus was that it's going to be very difficult to get a conviction here. 
Well, we can also, uh, we weren't able to get the AG or any of the AG's representatives on the show, but we do have an audio clip from the August 8th press conference from Paul Ware, who's the special investigator hired by Attorney General Martha Coakley, with a more fairly detailed description of the indictment against power fasteners from the August 8th press conference. And uh, we'll play that clip now so that you can comment on it. Uh, But this indictment, we believe, gets to the heart of the matter, particularly since the evidence will include information that in 1999, when there was demonstrable displacement or so-called creep in these anchor bolts, and Powers was called to the tunnel, um, reviewed the anchor bolts comparable to what you see in these photographs here, in which there is displacement between the ceiling uh, and the anchor bolt, which simply should not occur. They had the opportunity to make clear the distinction in these products and to raise the red flag at that time, which might have altered the course of events. They did not do so. And accordingly, uh, we stand before you today with with this indictment. In response to that uh, indictment, Power Fasteners released a statement. They were obviously shocked when they found out they were being charged with manslaughter, and they said, we're stunned beyond belief. And the only reason their company's been indicted, they claim, is that unlike others implicated in the tragedy, we don't have enough money to buy ourselves out of it. What do you think, David, Brad? Well, based on the documents that we've seen and some of the testimony that we've taken so far, there's no way that Powers could be so shocked as it claimed, except under the notion that it is uncommon to indict a corporation as opposed to individuals. In terms of, uh, of you know, its, it's, its position that it doesn't have enough money to buy its way out, I don't think anybody other than Powers, is, is realistically suggesting that Martha Coakley uh, indicted a company without any basis simply to extort some kind of uh, result. I think that there's more than enough evidence to indict them, and whether there's a conviction or not, um, it was a serious, significant, meaningful step in the case. Now, Attorney General Coakley went to great lengths to point out that this was simply the first step that this was not necessarily the last indictment. It is not the last step in her process. And we take her at her word, and the family appreciates that. Brad, can I ask you to flip for a minute and play Powers' attorney's sides? Uh, what have defenses have they offered so far? Primarily their defense has been a clever media defense, and that is, after all, we only sold you know $1,287.60 of standard set epoxy. That was their position. What they then don't say is that they sold nearly half a million dollars of the fast set, which was used in the tunnel ceiling. Um, It's not like they are a tiny company that only paid, played a very small role. They were selling hundreds of thousands of dollars of epoxy uh, to these companies. Now, they had the best opportunity to point out that there is a problem in using facet, and they decided intentionally not to say anything. And in the in the in the notion that, and I understand what David's saying that that if a corporation is sitting in front of you, on on one hand, it's harder to get a, a sense of what it knew and what it did. On the other hand, it's the the, the jury would clearly understand that they're not talking about. Uh, putting that particular witness necessarily in jail, that this is a matter of a corporation that should pay for its, its criminal mistake. And so I'm not as certain that the mere fact that it's a corporation will make that much of a difference. 
Um, but I don't think there's any question that Powers had a great deal of knowledge uh, focused within a few individuals at the company um, about the failures of its facet, and they never said anything. And, and just to, to touch on that, I, I certainly don't mean to suggest that it's, it is it legally or otherwise impossible to convict a corporation on criminal charges. It happens. It, it certainly has happened recently in Massachusetts. And Martha Coakley has also shown that she has no problem when the evidence um, leads her there to indict corporations. She did so in a, in a much less high-profile case, I think, about two months ago. So she certainly, you know, when the evidence is there, has shown a willingness or, or, or um, ability to do so. But one of the things that, that strikes me on the outside, and I, I defer to Brad 120% in terms of the facts and analyzing some of the evidence that's come in because I am not privy to it, although I'm happy to take it, Brad, if you want me to you know, splash <laughs> on the case well, okay, of the Lord, David. But, you know, just from an outside standpoint, when you do have powers before the court and you don't have Bechtel and you don't have Modern Continental in the criminal case, those are names, those are corporations that are going to be frequently raised by both the prosecution and the defense. And from the defense standpoint, it's a lot easier to blame someone for wrongdoing when they're not there to defend themselves. And I think that's one of the, the hurdles that I think exists in this case. Well, there's an 80-year-old Massachusetts law limiting the corporation to no more than a $1,000 fine. And obviously, the case for Powers is more significant from a civil standpoint. David, Brad? It is. And, but, I mean, even on, on the criminal standpoint, if there was a conviction, um, it certainly would have you know, a negative effect on Powers' ability to do business in the future with public entities. And I imagine there would be quite a few private businesses that wouldn't want anything to do with a corporation that had been found guilty of, uh, of criminal manslaughter in this kind of case. But it was uh, amusing and, and you know, certainly appropriate to see members of the legislature here in Massachusetts jumping up and down um, about you know, making the, the penalties tougher on, uh, on, on indictments involving corporations. But that's uh, too little too late here. I mean, the maximum penalty is $1,000. And I have yet to uh, speak to anybody, lawyer or non-lawyer, who thinks that uh, that's an appropriate punishment for somebody that gets convicted of a, of a crime like this. Well, Brad, somebody had to specify these bolts, had to specify some type of epoxy, and probably even specify, you know, 26 tons worth of material that's hanging from the ceiling. Uh, what kind of liability or criminal liability could these people possibly face that were involved with uh, the architecture, the uh, creating such heavy panels in the ceiling? Are we, as a society, exceeding our ability to be able to build these kinds of things? I certainly don't think we're exceeding our ability to, to build them. Uh, companies that are focused primarily on safety and complying with their long-term requirements of the public for a project certainly can do so. It's when a project is overtaken by, in, in, to some degree, corruption, but in, in most respects, uh, an, uh, an incredible pressure on getting a project in uh, on time and under budget, which is very important, but at this point they were already so far behind and so far over budget that there was enormous pressure on all of the engineers uh, to simply look the other way. Now to answer your first part of your question, and this answers uh, or at least uh, addresses something that David raised, I'm not at all convinced that, that Powers Fasteners is going to be alone there in the dock at a criminal trial. They may be, but, um, but there's plenty of reason for them to have company. There's no question that the specifications set by, in this instance, uh, Gannett Fleming uh, was the company that was setting what needed to be done in terms of what kind of epoxy would hold it up. 
But it was Bechtel that made the choice to use epoxy anchors, adhesive anchors, as opposed to mechanical anchors, which seemed to be Gannett Fleming's first choice. There's plenty of of blame to go around, and frankly, there's plenty of criminal responsibility. I spent the better part of last week uh, dealing with an emergency motion from an, uh, an engineer at Gannett Fleming who intends to plead his Fifth Amendment rights in response to a deposition notice. Um, that's been denied, and that deposition is going to go forward next week. But it's a clear indication that there is plenty of criminal knowledge uh, involved in the project on the part of many different parties, not just Powers Fasteners. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll get final thoughts from our guests, and we'll hear from Attorney General Martha Coakley. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com, Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. I'd like to welcome back David Frank, news reporter from Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly and a criminal attorney himself, along with attorney Brad Henry, a partner in the Boston law firm of Meehan, Boyle, Black, and Bogdanow, and plaintiff's liaison counsel on behalf of the children of Melina DeValle. Uh, I mentioned before the break that we would listen to Attorney General Martha Coakley. She's discussing an ongoing investigation and as part of the earlier August 8th press conference. Here's the clip. 
What I want to do is stress that this is one piece now of an ongoing investigation, and, and no inferences should be drawn from this indictment today about uh, lack thereof or uh, the decisions that have been or will be reached as to any other parties involved. I want to stress again that the investigations around this on the federal level, on the state level, criminal, civil, relating to cost recovery, uh, relating to compensation, uh, relating to uh, other asset uh, features that we are looking at uh, remains open and ongoing. And I uh, particularly today need to thank uh, a few people who have been instrumental. Well, here she is saying that, you know, this isn't the only indictment, presumably, that's going to be coming down, and perhaps there are going to be more. What kind of time frame do you think we're looking at? Well, I can tell you from the civil standpoint that the, the Duvalier's family litigation is, is fairly far along. We have, we've been taking uh, depositions for uh, several weeks now, and we have about a million and a half pages of documents. The Attorney General's own civil process um, is... It's just far behind because of the ongoing criminal investigation, and answers aren't even due in that com- uh, to that complaint until September. Um, David would have a better sense, I think, as to how long the criminal process might take with respect to at least powers. Well, I mean, I think in in many respects, it uh, you know it obviously is an ongoing um, investigation. You hear that term all the time. The statute of limitations is not a problem. This is uh, something that's certainly well within that, but. You know, the, the the more time that passes between the indictment of powers and, and any subsequent indictments, the the more head scratching that you would uh, you'd, you'd see. I mean, the the defense for a corporation that gets indicted later than sooner would argue that the delay somehow prejudices their ability to present a defense. But the the attorney general is in, still on good grounds. They have plenty of time, and if they make a strategic decision for whatever reason to indict next month, the following month, there's there's really nothing to uh, to prevent that from happening. Brandon, in your case, in your civil case, have you seen Powers uh, bring anyone in as cross-defendants, or are they uh, participating in a joint defense agreement and going to resolve those uh, indemnity issues later on? No, there's, unlike so many civil cases, there's no joint defense agreement or unified front, really. Um, there's really no even pretense of, of an attempted unified front. Virtually all of the defendants have cross-claimed one another, both in this case and in the cost recovery action. And with respect to specific allegations, the, it appears that Power's specific position is that Modern Continental, the, the uh, contractor, one, used the wrong uh, type of epoxy, and two, even, even the epoxy that it did use, it installed incorrectly. So that's essentially been their defense. They also blame uh, Bechtel Parsons Brinkerhoff for having known all of this and done nothing about it. Has the AG been asking for information from your civil case? Uh, nope, not specifically. Uh, much of the information that we have, the, the Attorney General's office apparently already had through subpoenas and through uh, various witnesses. And in fact, as we move along, we, we discover again and again materials that had been produced to the Attorney General um, that were being withheld in our case. David, I think you've done some, some investigation on this uh, and that we've heard about some problems in Singapore related to power fasteners. Can you tell us about that? In terms of um, in terms of powers, I may I may defer to uh, to Brad who knows more about the corporation. But there's no no doubt that uh, Powers has been on the hot seat before. And in terms of looking at the way um, this case could play out if it went into a criminal 
courtroom, which is, is, is much of the focus of what I've done thus far, um, it's expected, or, or certainly Paul Ware, the, the, the prosecutor appointed to, uh, to handle this case, would, would seek to use some of that information that had happened as a, uh, as a sort of a, a prior bad act that, that certainly could be admissible if, uh, if, if the court makes particular findings. Brad, what's the background behind the Singapore issue? Well, as we understand it, and we're still looking into this because there, there are a huge number of documents in the case, um, there was a housing project in Singapore in either, I think it was 1998 or 1999, where there were it was becoming clear that there were problems with the fast set epoxy. Uh, a series of tests were conducted, and the the epoxy was performing far, far under, on a, on a magnitude of you know, 50, 60 percent, far under its published uh, expectations. Now, th- the reason this is important is, as we understand it, the same manual, same manufacturer's catalog was being relied upon by Gannett Fleming and, and companies back here in the United States. And so if that's true, that is that they had inaccurate or misleading data and they knew about it, as reported by the Globe at least, um, this is knowledge that they had when they walked into the tunnel and looked at that creeping ceiling. Is there any kind of epoxy that would hold this level of weight in the ceiling, given the design? We don't believe reasonably. We think it was, it was a ridiculous idea to use an epoxy when you could use uh, mechanical bolts. Uh, I think the notion was that, well, this was, a, a, this was unique to this last 250 feet of the tunnel. Um, but Gannett Fleming, the designer, was, was really not excited about using the adhesive anchors in the first place and was definitively opposed to the, the amount of weight specified by Bechtel Parsons Brinkerhoff and the type of anchor plates holding it up. Are there other significant issues with the big ding? I mean, this is a huge, the only word I can think of is boondoggle. Um, is this the first in a whole series of failures that we're going to be seeing down the road? Well, sadly, it's not. It's not even the first of a series of failures. Uh, you know, in in some ways, fortunately, it was the first that that killed a civilian. But there have been deaths on the Big Dig, fewer than in many big projects. But we've had we have thousands of leaks in these tunnels. Um, we have a whole number of problems with concrete, with uh, different materials that are in the tunnel that have proved to be substandard. Uh, not to mention all manner of of you know cost overruns and improper billing practices and things like that. So I think this may be one of a great many uh, such uh, scandals. Yeah, the sad reality is that this is one chapter in the uh, in the book of of mishaps and uh, and failures that have happened during the big dig. It's certainly uh the the, the one of the most uh horrific and 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 saddest situations that's come out of it, but the big dig has been a uh has been a legal and 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 uh financial mess since it started. Is there some type of uh, coverage, insurance coverage, that uh, Powers Fasteners has available to it that uh, will resolve this issue in favor of the children, or, or are they looking at you know, satisfying any type of an adverse judgment out of their own pocket? That's a good question, and it would be both the children and Malena's uh, widow, uh, Angel Devalier, but they have, they have plenty of insurance, uh, both primary and excess, of course, you know there are reservations of rights on that kind of insurance, and so it really will depend. Typically, in Massachusetts, uh, insurance policies cover gross negligence, and so you know if gross negligence is one of the standards that can be shown, 
uh, certainly in, a, in, the, in the civil case. And if gross negligence is proved, the plaintiff's position is that that insurance uh, would, would pay on behalf of Powers Fasteners. Now, in California, and uh, the circumstances, I think, are the same in Massachusetts, if you're proven to be criminally liable for this type of thing, that eliminates insurance coverage. Well, in Massachusetts, it would depend upon exactly what you're criminally liable for. For example, if it's intentional, I certainly agree. I think that's, that's the case. Um, that would be true in Massachusetts as well. But if they were criminally, criminally liable for gross negligence, um, maybe bordering on, on recklessness, uh, which, as I understand it, and David can correct me if I'm wrong, is on the lower end of what needs to be proved, but, but at least that has to be proved to, to secure a criminal conviction, that still could, it wouldn't be automatically disqualified. Insurance wouldn't be automatically disqualified because of a criminal conviction. It would depend on what they were convicted for, on what standard. Right, and the standard here, you, you, you did get it right. I mean, the, the, the standard that would have to be proved would be that the, uh, the conduct in question involved such a high degree of likelihood that substantial harm would likely result to another person, in this case, uh, Mr. Valley. Well, we've reached the end of our programs. It's time to wrap up with our with your final thoughts and give our listeners your contact information. So, uh, David, let's start with you. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I guess a, a parting thought would be that there's absolutely no doubt that this was just a terrible tragedy that should never have happened. There's certainly plenty of blame to go around, and I would suggest that the uh, the civil arena is where much of that will happen. And it does seem, um, Brad included, that uh, the plaintiffs in this case are are uh, represented by extremely competent counsel. Uh, from a criminal standpoint, as I, as I said off the, uh, at the beginning of the show, I still think the government is looking at a, an uphill battle. Massachusetts doesn't recognize the concept of criminal negligence, and because of that, it's just a very difficult standard to, uh, to, to prove when you, when you walk into a courtroom. And when you take into account that there are so many players involved in this, many of whom aren't going to be in the courtroom, you're, uh, you're creating the classic finger-pointing defense that that happens in, uh, in, in many cases. But uh, that said, my, my contact information, uh, I'm, I'm a reporter here at Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Our website is uh, www.masslawyersweekly.com. Thanks to the Big Dig and uh, other subjects, it gives us plenty to write about, and I encourage uh, anyone listening to, uh, to, to take a look. And Brad Henry? Great. Thanks, Craig, and thank you, David. Uh, I think that from the family standpoint, given how difficult this is, as David describes it, they they truly applaud the decision of Attorney General Coakley to pursue a criminal indictment, and they do take her at her word that this this indictment is just the first step in a in a process that's going to be continuing for some time yet. In terms of reaching us, uh, I would appreciate any comments, uh, any suggestions. We do take uh, take a lot of ad- advice and and heed to what the public has to say and also to fellow attorneys, uh, we can be reached at www.mehanboyle.com. And we thank you very much for your interest, uh, both you, Craig, and you too, David, in following this story. Well, thank you, both of you, for being on the show. Uh, That wraps it up for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. We will be back next week with Bob Ambrosi after he returns from San Francisco. And I'm sure he missed talking about the big dig since uh, he's from Boston. Thanks again for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. Money, 
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.